there another song or am I done? It's my turn. Okay. Now you got to hear me preach. Okay. <laughs> All right. So here we go. This was begun last week, and as I mentioned, as uh, this passage was one of those that tends to have some more difficulty with people having to deal with uh, the concepts there, we did, I decided we're going to take our time on it. And so the message is a continuation from last week. Why did God command the destructions of the destruction of nations? And that's part two. And I mentioned that uh, over these uh, several, four weeks, really, starting last week, uh, that there's four doctrines or topics that uh, I want us to look at to help us understand the passage. And those topics are, or those doctrines are, the holiness of God, uh, sin and the dangers it brings, God's wrath and God's sovereignty, and that's God's sovereignty in everything, including salvation. So we're turning to this difficult passage uh, and the question we're attempting to answer is, why did God command the destruction of nations? And the reason for that question, of course, is because this passage that we're studying, uh, and also other passages in Scripture, frankly, can cause us to pause, or they can cause people who are new to the faith, or those who are against the faith, to say something like this. How can a loving God command the destruction of nations. And of course, along those lines, there's also the objection people have to hell, right? And God's punishment of the wicked. If he loves everyone, why would he do that? Or how could he do that? But as we began to see last week, to ask the question shows a lack of understanding in the holiness of God, a lack of understanding in how, how serious sin is, um, and a lack of understanding of God's wrath and his sovereignty as well. And of course, uh, the fact that God is even sovereign over all things, including salvation, that bothers people sometimes as well. Because if he's sovereign to save some, he's also sovereign in not saving others. And we will begin looking that, at that in the next couple weeks, Lord willing. But let's start by looking at the passage once more, and then we'll get into our topic, which is sin and the dangers it brings. So here we go again in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting at verse 1. We will read through verse 11. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly." But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God in this passage through Moses is telling the Israelites that when they enter the promised land, they are to wipe out all of those people groups mentioned. If those people groups were to wave a white flag, they were not to be given quarter. They were not to be given a peace treaty. They weren't even supposed to be captured and treated as slaves. No mercy was to be shown. Israel was to devote them to complete destruction. And they were not to intermarry with them, which I kind of thought, how could they if they wiped out? But anyway, but they didn't, so we already know that. <laughs> they didn't do all this stuff. But they were not to intermarry with them because they were an idol-worshiping culture. And they would be a bad influence on them. So just as a parent might warn their child that they should not hang out with friends who are a bad influence or they should date only people who share their same beliefs. A parent might say that in the same way, and God was warning the people of Israel that there's a real and present danger in associating with people who are worshiping a pagan satanic religion. And by the way, satanic religion sounds pretty strong, right? That's a word we hear and we're like, ooh. Any other religion other than the religion of Jesus Christ is a satanic religion, by the way. So you can use those words. It might be careful how you use them, but it is the truth. When you do that, um, when you associate with people that are worshiping idols and uh, the, the potential that the Lord is warning about here, uh, or when a... When a person tries to uh, associate with someone and hoping that they'll, uh, maybe my faith will rub off on them, uh, it's also possible that you could compromise your faith to please them or leave, it all, leave the faith altogether sometimes, and that's why God is warning them. And this is why parents in the church, by the way, used to warn kids against a concept that I don't know if you've heard of this term, but the concept of evangelistic dating, have you heard this? Or dating evangelism or something like that. So what that means is a girl sees a guy, she thinks is pretty nice, but he's not a believer. He doesn't have faith in Jesus. But she thinks that maybe through dating him, he'll be converted, and they'll live happily ever after as a happy Christian couple. Yet what is just as likely or perhaps more likely to happen is that the girl, to please the guy she has a crush on, will compromise her own values to keep him. And often that means disastrous consequences. So when we are looking at answering this question, our topic this morning is sin and the consequences that come with it. And I want to look at three thoughts about sin's consequences that apply to this passage. 
First, that when we spend time around it, we will be more likely to do it. When we spend more time around it, we're more likely to do it. Second, sin separates us from God. And third, uh, which carries into next week's topic as well, is that sin provokes God's wrath. So the more time we spend around sin, the more likely we are to sin. Sin separates us from God, and sin provokes God's wrath. So we're going to consider these three consequences from, from two perspectives as well. First, as they pertain to the reason God commanded the destruction of the people that we just read about. And second, how they pertain to the duty of every Christian to put our sin to death. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, So the first point was that the more time we spend around sin, the more likely we will be to sin. And this is the reason given on why the people were not to intermarry with the pagans. And this is, again, Deuteronomy 7. I'm going to go back to the passage, verse 3 to 5. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. I mentioned last week that these cultures were among the most depraved cultures on earth at the time. And we can imagine the high level of sin because our culture reflects a high level of sin. Um, If a child growing up in a Christian home and trained as a Christian spends most of their time in the world, and if most of their education comes not from their family but from secular sources, the same thing could happen that God is warning about here. They could be turned away from their own family values and then be found to be serving other gods. And yet, if this is true for the children, is it not also true for the adults? And yet, many adults would claim that the things they hear, read, and see, oh, that doesn't really affect my moral compass. It simply isn't true, though. I had a Christian man once tell me he, he's unaffected by nudity in movies. Oh, that doesn't, that doesn't affect me. And this reflects the attitude of many who think that their exposure to the sinful parts of the world will not impact their own actions. Yet we all know this cannot be true. In fact, what we spend our time thinking about impacts our emotions. And our thoughts will ultimately play out in our actions in some way or another. That's why our recent D6 lessons are so important. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to think about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise, Philippians 4.8. You will hardly see any of those things on the cable news networks, nor on Twitter, nor on Facebook. You won't find them in most places. You have to look for those things. Yet how many times do we end up focusing many of our daily hours on those things And at the same time, we're not focusing on those things that Paul writes about in Philippians 4.8. You see, it isn't enough to just avoid the negative. We have to search out the positive as well. I think it was in the D6 magazine this week or last week. It said you, you can't just say, I'm getting rid of those thoughts. You have to replace them with good thoughts. The more time we spend around sin, the more likely we are to partake in sin. And that includes the sins that happen in our thoughts. 
because ultimately those thoughts will affect our actions. You can see this happening in the political arena today. Both of the two main parties have particular news sites that their folks go to. Both of them portray their opponents as enemies who are dangerous to America. Both of them stir up anger and hatred at every bill passed, every election won by an opponent. Their fundraising is most effective when it's negative and paints the opponents as enemies. And I don't care which side you're on, if you spend a lot of time watching those shows or reading those blogs or however you engage with that, your mind will become very negative very fast. And just like those people of influence in the political arena, you yourself will begin to see others as an enemy rather than someone who just disagrees with you. Instead of having a discussion to try to win them over, you will end up not talking at all. Or if you do, you may end up shouting at someone. But if you are in Christ, this cannot be who you are. And if that person is you right now, and you've been sucked into the lie that people who disagree with you are automatically an enemy, you need to recenter your thoughts in line with God's word. You see, we don't put on the armor of God to fight people but we put it on to fight evil, beginning with the evil inside of ourselves. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 talks about this. The armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against people? No. Against the schemes of the devil. For we, wrestle not, uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I gave the example of the political landscape today. Remember the main point, that what we spend time thinking about will affect our emotional state, and ultimately that affects our actions. Do not spend too much time thinking about what makes you angry or sad or scared or anxious but replace those thoughts with the good things of God. And in Deuteronomy 7, God's people are told, if you do not remove this sin from your midst, it will take you down. And that is another reason why God was right to tell them to eliminate those sinful people. It really was not the people that were the enemy, it was the sin that they lived in. Now those people were God's enemy, for sure. They hated God. But if they had been morally upright and of good character, then this necessity would not have been there. But God's people were to be a holy people. Remember, holy means set apart. They were set apart for God, and they were to set themselves apart from the world. We end up being affected by the sin around us, so we must be careful what we expose ourselves to. Paul told the Corinthian church that they cannot avoid entirely the sinfulness of the world or else they'd have to leave the world altogether, Paul said. Sometimes you'll hear a Christian say when challenged about activities they participate in that, well, they're there for the evangelistic opportunity of being with sinners. Jesus ate with sinners, they'll say. So they justify taking part, if not in the sin itself, at least being around it, And yet, could anyone say they have the capacity of Jesus to stay clean in the midst of sinful people? 
And can anyone say that they, like Jesus, spend hours each day in prayer and meditation on God's word? Don't fool yourself to think that because Jesus ate with sinners, you're safe in spending most of your time in places abundant with temptation. Until you model the devotional life of Christ, you may be in great danger if you try to model his evangelistic life. And if you spend all your time among the sinful people of the world without ever taking those devotional steps Jesus did, there's great danger for you. Instead, spend most of your time with fellow believers and in God's word and in prayer so that when you go out into the sinful world, you will have armed yourself with that armor of God that protects you from the spiritual attacks that are to come. But it can't be a 90 to 10 ratio where 10% you're with doing things of the Lord and 90%. It probably should be something like the other way around. Because we're not Jesus, but even Jesus spent his time making sure his heart was right. And watch out for all the anger around us. Anger about politics, anger about the economy, anger about the people you can't seem to figure out or, they, or you think they can't figure things out um, because they're not as intelligent as you maybe you think or whatever it might be. Because we need to remember what James wrote. This is very, very important. We always like to say, oh, I, I have righteous anger because I'm mad about this. James says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our next point is that sin separates us from God. This is illustrated first in Scripture at the very beginning, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, they no longer could have fellowship with God as they had before. They couldn't walk with him in the garden. In fact, they were banned from the garden. Um, Isaiah 59, 2, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. David realized his sin separated him from God when he confessed in Psalm 51 after he was confronted about his evil actions with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. But he, he had sincere repentance, and he linked his plea for forgiveness to a desire to be restored for fellowship, with fellowship with God. He recognized that the sin had broken the fellowship because he said, cast me not away from your presence. And he linked that to, I need your forgiveness. I need your presence. God did not want his people separated from him because of sin. So this is another reason why they needed to drive out that sinful culture they were coming into. Now, we know that if we're in Christ, we are free of sin. Romans 6, 22 and 23, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet while the Christian can rest with assurance and salvation, we are still commanded to fight against sin in our own lives. In fact, Scripture uses some very strong language about how we're to deal with sin. 
we are to put it to death. Some of our predecessors in the faith used a term that they said the mortification of sin, which is just another way of saying killing sin, putting sin to death, completely eliminating it. And as strong as that language is, we must not begin to believe that we fight sin as Christians because we may lose our salvation or because sin may destroy us in the end. That's not the case if you're truly in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are in no danger of that happening. That is, if we have come to a real saving faith in Christ, we are no longer identified with our sin. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The good news for those in Christ, we're not in any danger. We're not going to face eternity bearing the penalty for our sins. And yet, until that day when he perfects us, we're to fight it. We fight sin in our own lives, not because we fear the eternal consequences of sin. We fight sin because now we identify with Christ. I sign my emails when I'm writing to other believers in Christ. It reminds me that I am in Christ. My identity comes from this. But it also reminds me that all believers are one in Christ. When I sign my email in Christ, I want the believer receiving the email to be reminded as well that we are one in Christ. We are unified in Christ. But if I send an email to someone who's not a believer, I don't sign it that way. Because if they're not in Christ, they won't, for one thing, understand what that means. But it would also be not correct in a sense. For those in Christ, we are a new creation. We walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Sin ultimately is defeated in our case. Since we are in Christ, we will not be held liable for sin because he paid the penalty for us. So we are to put off sin because we are in Christ, not because we're hoping to win a place in his kingdom. If we are in Christ, if we are saved from the wrath of God, it is his work and his work alone. So in gratitude and rejoicing, we fight our sin. Maybe it helps to think of it this way. There are times recorded in the Old Testament where God's people inquired of God whether they should go up to battle. And the words are often something along the, the they ask God, should we go up? And he says, you should go up. You're going to win the battle. To all who have saving faith in Christ, we are told in our battle against sin, go up, you will win the battle. While God fought with his, uh, with, with, when God fought with his people, they still had to go up. It wasn't just God saying, I'll go wipe them out for you. They still had to go up. And while God has promised we who are in Christ will be victorious against sin in the end, we still have to go to battle. Colossians 3, 5 to 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's a lot of language Paul uses like this to remind us that's who we were, this is who we are. That's who we were, this is who we are. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, seeing that you have put on the new self. You've put off the old self, put on the new self. Paul uses language like this several times. And this brings us to our last point about sin, which we'll spill into next week's sermon as well, on the wrath of God. Sin brings the wrath of God. Notice what is said by Paul. Put to death what is earthly in you. On account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. On whom is the wrath of God coming? On those who live in that sin and those who are not identified as being among those in Christ. In other words, it comes for the unrepentant sinners. Now let's go back for a moment to remember the questions we're trying to answer. The question we're trying to answer is, why did God command the destruction of nations? And we are looking carefully at these four points or reasons or doctrines that concern why God was right and just to command this. The first one was the holiness of God. Then sin and the dangers it brings. God's wrath. God's sovereignty. God is holy and cannot tolerate sin. His people were set apart for him, and they were to set themselves apart from the world. The people God commanded to eliminate were very wicked. Sin brings many dangers. Sin is dangerous to be around because it can affect everything and anyone it comes in contact with. Sin separates people from God, and sin brings the wrath of God. And finally, God is sovereign over all. So ultimately, whatever God has said is right and good is right and good. He is sovereign over everything, including salvation. Sin brings God's wrath. And because we know the wrath of God will come on all of the unrepentant, in other words, those who do not turn away from their sin and turn to Christ, because of that, we try to persuade people to turn to Christ in order to have them avoid the wrath of God that is coming. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, For we must appear before the judgment of seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. Paul is saying, the reason we're doing this gospel work is because we want less people to feel the wrath of God, and we want more people to put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Job also knew that in God's holiness, unless a provision was made, there's no way he could face God. In Job 31, 23, for I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Unless there was a provision God made. Hebrews 10, 31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And Jesus warned us not to fear people. After all, the worst thing a person can do is kill your body. That's not really so bad. But we are to fear God because of his wrath against sin. Luke 12, 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, this is the words of Christ, 
Do not fear those who kill the body, but, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, the sermon is being given, and there's categories of people listening. And I know we aren't supposed to put people into categories, but this isn't politically correct to put people in categories, but I'm not talking about categories of race or status or wealth in this world. But there are categories of spiritual positions. Perhaps there's two categories of believers here. One category will hear and receive this message with gratitude, and though it may challenge them, they'll realize this is good for me. Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. These believers will take to heart what was said. The other category may be those believers who haven't really considered their sin to be that big of a deal. I hope that all believers would seek the Scriptures and come to the conclusion that, in fact, we are to mortify or kill our sin. It will be a never-ending battle until our dying breath, but the victory is already won. God has told us to go up in this fight, and we will ultimately win the battle. Actually, ultimately, he wins the battle for us. (laughs) But we need to fight it. There also may be categories of those who are listening to this sermon and have not believed. Perhaps you've not believed in the need for salvation because you don't believe in the wrath of God. Perhaps you have believed that God loves everyone unconditionally, so in the end there's no need to fear him. Perhaps you don't believe in God at all. Perhaps you don't care. Or as some people have flippantly said, well, I want to go to hell, that's where my friends are. If you're a believer, whatever category you may be, and I plead with you to take seriously these things, I mean, if you're not a believer... Take this seriously. God's wrath will be on all sinners. And our God is a consuming fire. Your eternity in hell will not be a party with your friends. It will be, according to the Bible, eternal conscious torment. That means forever you will experience pain and suffering because of your sin. You may think your sin is not that bad so that your punishment shouldn't be that bad. Yet every sin against a holy, eternal, self-existent, omniscient, all-powerful God, every sin against him is cosmic treason. No matter how mild you think your sin is, God does not think it's mild. And his wrath upon sin will be fearful. The greatest example of God's wrath towards sin that's ever been witnessed by mankind and ever will be was when he poured out his wrath on his son Jesus, who voluntarily took the place of sinners who would never be able to pay the debt of sin they owed. They would never have been able to turn away the wrath of God on their own. And next week, we're going to talk more about the wrath of God. You should fear it. If you're not in Christ, you should fear it. But you can escape it. Put your faith in the one who took the wrath of God upon himself. So the consequences of sin are many. Remember, the more time we spend around sin, the more likely we are to sin. Sin separates us from God. 
and sin provokes God's wrath. If God took sin so seriously that he commanded the Israel, Israelite people to wipe out entire nations because of sin, how much more should we seek to eradicate sin from our lives? If you are in Christ, then leave this message today with this in mind. God has promised the ultimate victory against sin. So cheerfully go up to battle with it, knowing that the battle is a guaranteed victory. You see, this is something we can do with joy. Celebrate the victories when we come. When we face a temptation and choose the way out that God provided, let us celebrate that win. And when we fail, then let us take a moment to consider what went wrong and confess it to our king and the commander of this battle because John 1, 8, and 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is how the war against sin is eventually won. Battle after battle will come. Some battles we will win, and then we can celebrate and give glory to God. Some battles we will lose, and we must go to our faithful king and confess. And when we do that, we need to go to the book of his battle plan and review it once more so that we can do better next time. Many years ago, I'm not going to say how many years ago, I went to the Marine Corps boot camp in San Diego to be trained as a U.S. Marine. One of the surprises I found there was how much time is devoted to the classroom. My recruiter never told me that. I had no idea how much time you'd sit in the classroom. Studying Marine Corps history, learning battle strategies, having to memorize things from a manual, that was all a vital part of the training. We studied the history of the Marine Corps to learn about what can happen in battle, as well as to be encouraged and have confidence in our identity as U.S. Marines, feared around the world. We admired the heroes of the past, and we wanted to be like them. We had to memorize certain things. We learned why we had to wear certain armor and how the different weapons worked and which weapon was most effective in what situation. And so for the believer who wants success on the battlefield against sin. We need to know the history. Admire those heroes of the faith. Be encouraged by their example. We need confidence in our identity in Christ. And we need to learn God's strategies. Why we wear his armor. Which of his weapons are the most effective in which situations. Let us go into battle with energy from our king and confidence in our victory and joy in our service for him. And that's how we get it done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I hope that we are beginning to see that there is a reason, a holy and just reason why you sent to have those people eliminated. Lord, in your holiness, you could not tolerate the sin. And that consequence of the sin is grave. And your own people, you did not want to be swayed aside by it. Lord, we are beginning to see 
the gloriousness of your holiness, but we want to know it better. Lord, we know that we need to go into battle against our sin, yet sometimes we would rather be a conscientious objector because that's a hard battle. Lord, I pray that we would each, each who is a believer here in this crowd this morning, would find from you the strength and fortitude for this fight against sin in our own lives. And Lord, if there's any here that has not put faith in you yet, or anyone listening to this sermon online that has not put faith in you yet, and is hearing this, and wondering if there's something real about the wrath of God that they ought to fear. Lord, I pray that you put the fear of God into them. Because, Lord, only after we recognize that, the fear of God, the fear of the wrath of God, the danger we're in because of our sin, only when we recognize that, Lord, do we see the need for a Savior. And Lord, I I pray that you'll continue to draw people to yourself through your word and by your Holy Spirit. Convict them of sin and convince them of the truth, I pray. Grow your kingdom, Lord. Do your mighty work in our lives and in your world. In Jesus' name, amen.